make sure at a bare minimum you're giving that reporter change. That's table stakes. You've got to give them something that's new. It's true today that wasn't true a week ago or yesterday. Welcome to the Look Left at Marketing podcast. Today I have two guests with me. One is my fellow Look Lefty, John Moran, veteran PR, digital media, and media coaching professional, and Melody Kimmel, founder of MK Media Training and one of the country's leading media presentation message trainers. If you look on Melody's Twitter handle, at Melody Kimmel, you'll see media trainer, presentation coach, road warrior, mom, yogini. That statement also has decades of experience behind it, media training, presentation coaching, and other types of message training to help experts from scientists, authors, and celebrities to B2B CEOs learn how to tell their story with skill and confidence. Melody Kimmel, welcome to the Look Left at Marketing podcast. I wanted to start off with a tweet I saw on your feed recently. Messages are the heart of your communications. Make them compelling. I really think that's a that's a solid way to start off for us and talk about success factors you have found for media training and executive presentation coaching. Love for you to riff off that beautiful quote. Thank you so much, Davida and John. I'll answer the question in something of a hybrid, joining coaching and training and the actual communications that you and I are preparing our clients to be ready to do. What I'm looking to teach is the success factors that make them shine in the spotlight. It was fun preparing to join here on this podcast, and I came up with four key success factors, and they all start with the letter A. We'll call them the four A's for leaders to be ready to get out in the public spotlight. So number one is authenticity. Be yourself. Nobody else is better at it than you are. Sometimes people really put a burden on themselves thinking suddenly they have to speak like the CEO of their dreams in some fashion. It's very fake and people can spot that a mile away. Number two, Assess the audience, screen the people that you're going to be talking to, know who's listening and make sure you're tailoring the comments accordingly. Quite often we work with people who have very different audiences. Sometimes the most important audience for them is internal. Our employees, sometimes it's different kinds of external audiences. The first folks, the internal people, the leaders can talk at a high degree of jargon and technical language and abbreviations because they are among the cognoscenti. They're talking with their own team. But as soon as you put a little gap in and they're talking to people externally, you're going to lose them. So it's really important to keep that in mind at all times. As Nietzsche famously said, we only hear what we already have ears for. So it's important to keep the audience with you by communicating in a language that they can understand. The third A that I like to hit people with is anticipation sounds like Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, It's very important that people take some time to anticipate the kinds of questions that they're going to get. And I mean, literally, not in a vague theoretical way. I like to give people an advanced questionnaire before media trainings and presentation trainings. And I always ask, give me five or more questions you're already hearing or you might reasonably expect. Give me another five or more that you are worried about or that you could even fairly say that you dread. And every now and then people will just go, questions that I'm not sure I can answer or some other very vague response. What I'm looking for are the literal specific questions because then the person can take some time and think about how they are going to actually answer them and also make sure they take some time, most important, thinking about what the messages are 
that they're going to use that answer as the platform for communicating. That gets us to the fourth, final, and most important A, which is an agenda. I don't let anybody do interviews without having an agenda, which is another way of saying having your own key messages that you're looking for this interview as the chance to communicate. The agenda or the key messages have two vital roles in an interview. Number one, they're the elevator pitch. People always get it very viscerally when I say that to them and I say, so if you had three key messages and if you just recited one, two, three, boom, that should be your elevator pitch. They also are your, they're your script in a sense, your roadmap, let's use that word, that tells you what to get in the conversation, even if the reporter doesn't ask the exact right question. And it's also your answer key. It's all very well to come up with a 200-item FAQ document, but you're never going to be able to remember all of it if they're all uniquely scripted, different kinds of answers. And it's also not very effective from a message standpoint. What you want to do is use those answers as a vehicle for getting in one or more message in just, just about every time you're answering somebody. That last part is interesting to me because as a PR practitioner, when a client might say, you know, put some messages in a briefing page. And you know these people, know this stuff in and out, or if we do some training. And then when you said you can't put 200 things in an FAQ or a message document because you want to make it organic. So there's a balance between keywords and you know messaging. I would imagine a reporter kind of can smell a planned answer a mile away. Natural delivery is hard, but I would assume natural delivery comes when you know the material. Like anything else, when you know it, it comes out naturally. You have keywords that prompt, but you shouldn't have to script someone. Any thoughts there? It's a great point. Nobody wants to feel like they're being spoken at, even in a formal kinds of kind of interaction like a presentation or a media interview. So I love where you're going in that question, Davida. I think I encourage people, the technique I recommend is be as descriptive and detailed as you want to be in the earlier phases of preparation. You write out those messages. They probably have to be in English just so you can remember what the heck you're referring to. And then go back and strip them down. Strip them down to bullets. Even strip them down to keywords. I liked the notion of themes or buckets. So it's very much easier to retain those three to five important messages if you think of them as the buckets from which you want to draw throughout that interview. And it forces, that's a funny word, but it, it really breaks you out of a harness of being scripted. If you know that one important theme is healthcare in this century, that's a very broad bucket. It's not scripted at all. It gives you lots of leeway while still making it easy to remember so you stay on message and deliver that. I think uh, two things worth mentioning here. Number one, uh, to Melody's point about the messages themselves, one of the things I've said to executives through the years is if you can envision the story as it appears and you get one sentence, let's say it's a trend piece and you're only going to get one sentence, what do you want that sentence to be about that's best going to reflect your company and your message? That should be your recurring theme for this particular interview. And you should have that comment or that thought or that theme resonate a number of times during the course of the conversation. I think it's horrible when Corpcom's people hand their CEO or any executive two or three pages of key messages because 
they're thoughtful people and they try to cram as much as they can into the interview. It's often too much. You know, this is a case where less is more. The other thing, Melody, about your four A's that I think is terrific, you can bundle it all up as far as the executives are concerned, and it's about preparation. Because the executives, whether from their internal team or their PR agency, are going to get briefing documents ahead of time. And all of the things that you've talked about are in there and all of the the key messages and the things they need to know about the reporter and what the reporter is looking for with that opportunity, what the audience is and how you need to be specific to that audience. It's all there. But if the executives don't read any of it and they don't prepare, it's awful. And we've all probably got terrible stories of people that have gone into interviews unprepared and the results are poor, to say the least. And so it really does get down to preparation. I mean, as silly as it sounds, I will sometimes point out that if you were about to give a converse or a speech before 10 or 20 or 50,000 people, would you prepare? Or would you just jump up on the podium and start talking? Of course, you'd prepare. But when it comes to talking to a reporter who's writing for probably readership far beyond those numbers... They think nothing of just getting on the phone and riffing. And I think it's a big mistake. Yeah, riffing, winging, not popular uh, terms in my personal vocabulary. I was smiling at what you said because in the last week or two, I worked with a client and I have to really just completely disguise them. And these folks, they're wonderful people and they work so hard and they have been just overwhelmed with a task before them. Let's put it that way. I was brought in to do media trainings and of course I was begging for key messages. And finally, in the 11th hour arrives a document with what they call talking points, 13 pages, not 13 talking points, which would be bad enough, 13 pages. (laughs) And as I did each training, my task was to really gently tell the trainees, because the folks that sent me this were the communications people, this is all the information you could ever need and look for. It's all here. Think about how you would group them into just a small handful of what we might call messages. But by the third time, the big boss was on the line and she could read between the lines very, very capably. And at the end of the session, she asked me if I would be able and willing to create a, what I referred to as the message buckets. And I told them I'd be honored to do so. And I sent them a document with four key messages into which just pretty much all of those excellent meaty data, let's call them proof points, let's call them data points, could neatly be grouped. But now it was in a format that the poor beleaguered spokespeople could read, pay attention to, and of course, retain in some way, and then repeat them in each interview. Because we all know the goal in an interview is not just to get some point in once and then sit back with a smile, (laughs) wait for the coffee to arrive, but to get them in early and often in the course of the conversation to ensure it's breaking through that people are hearing it and and retaining it on their end. To that end, do you think the attitude of the CEO and other executives regarding coaching and training have changed? From my point of view, I think that the attitudes as far as wanting to do the sessions hasn't changed a whole lot. Most executives, regardless of age and regardless of size of company, are very busy people. And so carving out a big chunk of day to practice messaging at first glance doesn't seem terribly important to them. Once they get into the session, I think most of them will buckle down and and realize the importance of it. But I think as far as the media today, the younger executives, Melody, you might have a different point of view or Davida, but I I think the younger executives get it because we're all a little bit more immersed, hands-on in the uh, media. In the past, reporters did their jobs, and we all, as readers or viewers, whether or not we're in business, 
You know, we were sort of on the other side of the aisle, but because of social media, everybody can produce content. Everybody, in a sense, can be a reporter. You know, you have an accident in your your town, people take a picture, they put it up online. We see it all the time. The biggest news outlets when there's a story breaking, uh, and just recently the Tiger Woods car accident. You know, were you on the scene? Did you drive by? Did you see the car in the in the ditch? Uh, people are taking pictures. So, in a sense. People are involved in the process, in posting things in their personal and their professional lives. And so when it comes to dealing with the media, I think the younger executives get that media people these days have multiple demands. They have to move very fast. The stories aren't really very long. There are very few in-depth pieces anymore. If you get five, six, seven hundred words, a lot of times that's about average. Sometimes you'll get a bigger feature piece, but for the most part, it's quick and to the point. And that's the way the younger executives, I think, digest their own media and practice it themselves. And so when it comes to, okay, how do we be successful in that world in communicating a big message into a smaller story that's going to be quick and impactful to the reporter, I think they're a little bit more inclined to want to practice it. Whereas old school, I think it was a little bit more difficult with them. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to second the notion that you said, John. Um, it's still a bit tough to break in, and CEOs famously have uh, the attention span of a of a gnat, roughly. But I do think that they have a healthy respect and appreciation for, let's call it, their own brand and the company's brand in public life, and they they understand how that's impacted by the persona that their various important publics and, and stakeholders are perceiving from them. Um, some, and when I'm brought in these days, it's often for multiple audiences. There's a lot of concern, not only about, and this has always been true, but it's just more front of mind now. It's the general public. It's a subset of that. Investors, if it's a publicly traded company. It's the uh, analysts. Um, uh, internal internal people, employees, partners, regulators, when that's something that people are keeping an eye on. And they understand that uh, loose, what do you, loose lips can sink ships. They've, they, everyone's got a, they've got a story to tell. And, you know, I wanted to add one more, extol one more virtue of having an agenda, of having key messages, because um, as I think about it, executives really respond to that. I tell them, of course, in the interview, as I said, uh, the agenda of their key messages gives them their roadmap, what they, tells them what they want to say, even if they don't get the right question. And it also is their elevator pitch. It also is their answer key. And these are such high achieving people, as we all know. It Number three, having key messages gives them a metric to figure out how they did when the interview is over. I always say when you hang up the phone or leave the room or shut the Zoom nowadays, um, the question is not, did I get stumped? Did I know all the answers? No one is going to stump a subject matter expert or the CEO with questions about their company. But that's not the question. The question is, what were the points, the themes I wanted to sound in this interview? How successful was I in getting them in? And sometimes I tell them, just have it on a piece of paper, make a little check mark, make sure you've got a bunch of check, check marks on each of those key points. And the other thing that's great about having that piece of paper is that as the interview is going on, especially if it's remote, you can visually use it as a cue. And I like to tell executives, you need to be proactive in media opportunities because let's say you have 15 minutes with a reporter and there's an important point that you want to make and they don't ask about it. 
The worst thing in the world is to hang up afterwards, do the debrief and have an exec say, well, gee, I wish you would have asked me about this or I wish we would. have." Well, it's your fault. You should have brought it up. You should. If it's that important, help the reporter. They want to know what they don't know. And so if they haven't asked about it, it doesn't mean they don't think it's important. It just may be something they haven't thought about. So if that key message is on that little cheat sheet you're talking about there, Melody, that's perfect. If you think to yourself, boy, we're, we're almost done with this interview. And we haven't talked about this. Then that's your cue. Bring it up. Make sure that you mention it. And, and I think that kind of thing can be very helpful. The other thing with the media coaching sessions is, especially with the top level brass, is use video. And back, you know, around 2000, that period, say 2000 to 2010, if you said to an executive team, we're going to be doing video, they might, especially some of the tech companies we used to represent that were rarely on, you know, network TV or anything, but they'd shake their heads saying, ah, no, we don't need to do TV. We're never on TV. But it's not so much being on TV or video. It's how the, you look in the camera and everybody is their own harsh, harshest critic. And these people that have risen to the top have gotten there because they have pride and they're good at what they do and they want to be good at what they do. So when you put them on camera, even for five minutes, just asking them basic questions about their company and you watch it back immediately, nothing gets their attention quicker because they realize, ooh, you didn't look really great there. I didn't answer that question very well. I could have worded that differently. They'll have as many criticisms of themselves as we will have of them as, as trainers. And so I think that is always something that needs to be done early in the um, in the process, just to get everybody's attention. I think it does, it gets people serious and focused right at the start. Oh, absolutely. I, I call video delayed action mirror. And I also like to joke, it saves all those pesky conversations of did to, did not, did to, did not. You can see and hear it for yourself. And you're absolutely right. Much, much of the time, they, let, they pick up the lesson before we even say a word. There's content and then there's delivery of the content. I think we touched on that before. Some of the, the content, it's much easier. It's more tangible. It's the delivery, telling someone how to use their hands or not use their hands, inflection, passion, emphasis, show excitement, right? Generally, you've got a passionate person, maybe even talking about dry things, dry tech, you can get someone interested and on board with that. So that's probably a little harder to coach, I would imagine. Am I right? Yeah. You know, uh, if what you just said reminded me of a, of a study that was uh, published about a year and a half ago, I'm going to say in the Journal of Social Psychology. And it was so interesting, the persuasive points that a speaker gets for what? speaking a little louder than normal because even if the content wasn't spot on 100% didn't didn't win the hearts and minds of the listeners if speakers speak just a little bit louder than normal they project immense confidence and just unconsciously we respond to confidence confidence is so convincing so persuading, such a great sales technique. So I'm not, of course, obviously we don't want people shouting at each other. That would be a little counterproductive, but it just speaks also to some, so many of the delivery techniques that you were referencing, including vocal variety, speaking a little louder, building some pauses into what you're saying. So there's a little time for what you've said to resonate a little bit and always being mindful of the differences in the audiences that we're speaking to. If you're speaking to non-native English speakers or if you yourself might be considered to have a, an, a, an accent, if English is not your first language, be mindful of that. Go a little bit slower. Stay away from the inside baseball metaphors, things like that, just again to vary your variety and make you more compelling to tune into. That is very, very persuasive. 
The other thing on the uh, telephone where energy articulation and all of that comes into play is just that's the only thing oftentimes a reporter can judge you on. Like with all these video calls these days, these Zoom calls and what we're doing here, recording this, we can see each other. And if you're in the room with a reporter or in a studio with a reporter, you can see each other. But on telephone interviews, which so many executives do, all the reporter hears is is this voice on the other end of the uh, phone. And I hate it when executives use speaker phones because their voice isn't as strong. It doesn't resonate as clearly as if they're speaking as when they're speaking directly into the mouthpiece of a phone. I think it also sends a message to the reporter. They may be busy doing other things, but oftentimes executives can be a little bit, you know, sort of monotonish in the way they deliver their message to a reporter and they just sort of go through the motions. I think when it comes to telephone interviews, you've got to bring a lot of energy. You've got to bring the passion. If you're not excited about it, the reporter isn't going to be. I'd like to pivot to another point, which is very important these days, and that's on having a firm grasp of a company's purpose and mission, mission, excuse me, particularly with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Do you feel companies are approaching this in the, if there's such thing as a right way? I'd love to know what you're observing and and how you approach that with companies you're training. Very important point and such a wonderful thing for corporate America to be in the spotlight, kind of uh, people looking, just checking them out very closely to see what their story is on this very important subject. Now, the result of that sometimes is easy to laugh about or might almost seem silly. You know, why is X company talking about their commitment to diversity if it seems so unrelated to what they do, to their brand, et cetera. But I think even if companies are not making public statements, they certainly better look at their own company, their own culture, and work to make changes there. And if they have any public-facing dimension, and certainly even to suppliers and to to customers, just every company does, they need to to look at that in some way as well. Certainly, if we think think back to the whole George Floyd um, terrible events around that. And after that, there was just a tsunami of companies proclaiming their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I do think, you know, at, at one end, it's a spectrum, like so many things, probably at one end, a little bit on, more on the lip service side of things, and on the other end, uh, an authentic and, and heartfelt commitment to looking inside and fixing what needs to be fixed. There's value, maybe because I'm a communications person, in talking the talk as well, assuming it's authentic, assuming that is reflecting actions that a company is, is really taking. Because by actions being taken and by people learning about those actions and understanding the actions that a company takes, those plant the seeds to change culture. One statement at a time, which lays the groundwork, grows out initiatives, changes how jobs are defined, changes who we expect to see peopling those different kinds of jobs. We always want these things to happen tomorrow. You know, sometimes important change is inevitably takes longer than we would expect. But I'm going to contend that even gradual change is sometimes happening faster than we exactly realize. I mean, there's just, as I was just thinking before meeting up with you today about a few things that I've that I've been aware of, even something is to us inconsequential, but very important to the people in the wedding and engagement announcement. 
facts in our local newspapers. There was a there was a time when there were no uh, gay or lesbian or other non or non-binary kinds of weddings noted, and then they started coming in slowly, and it was such a big deal. And and now you really barely pay any attention. I, I don't know if you look in the wedding sections, but it's it's just such a fun mishmash now, and I think that's that's a positive change and. What I'm trying to point my finger at is that we now don't even think so much about it. It's not remarkable in some way. Another small item, but we can take that as something of a flag indicating change. I can't speak for every workplace in America, but I bet that it's a rare workplace of any significant size, which still tolerates people giggling over an ethnic joke, a racist or a sexist joke. Um, and if we think back earlier in our careers, earlier in our lives, that wasn't true. That kind of humor was endemic and no people didn't think much about it. And if they were pained by it, the expectation was that they would just kind of suck it up. They, no one would imagine them going to talk to, to talent, to HR about this in some way. I think most of these changes that we're talking about, which are so important in Melody, which you've just uh, illustrated here, come from the bottom up. I think they come from the employees and the expect expectations they have from their employers. I think that drives a lot of what's going on. I think what goes on in society drives a lot of what's happening in the in the C-suite as far as these things are concerned. Like you mentioned, the George Floyd thing, which was literally thousands, millions of Americans and actually citizens of the world protesting. And I think that's what caught the C-level attention. If it wasn't for all those protests and those people out in the street, I don't think they would have cared. I don't think there would have been a lot of mission statements and press releases about here's our point of view and our perspective. I don't think we would have seen any of that. And obviously those people out in the streets are the people that are in your workforce too and the people you want to hire tomorrow. So the larger point, and I agree with you 100%, every step forward is a step in the right direction. So march on. I think it goes both directions. It goes from the bottom up, goes from the top down. And you know, I had an interesting experience um, a couple of weeks ago, I was brought in to pitch a very large nonprofit, which has been very, very important during the hardship that millions of Americans are facing during the pandemic. And they wanted some media training for their top folks. And they wanted to know, well, who is actually going to be in the room? And they looked at me and they said, I I am quoting here. Well, I see you with your white face. Is there going to also be someone with a black face? Making sure that as our, as we're training the CEO, that the messages are going to resonate with communities of color who are one of the very important uh, stakeholders for our organization. And I thought, wow, I have not heard that before in this setting. And I, I think it's it's right on. It's spot on. And what happens now? We have to make sure that there is. So poof, change has been accomplished in one teeny, teeny little episode, but hopefully one that is playing out in, in many such phone calls and meetings around the country. One thing I'm thinking of, and it's not just with diversity, equity, inclusion, it's, you know, months, this cybersecurity month, February was Black History Month. So do you take advantage of that? Is that a way for people at least get a jump start and get a feel for how to make that part of their regular cadence of activity, acknowledgement of their employees, acknowledgement of cultures? This is the kind of question that I, my response to it is of two minds. One, public relations professional, other, other side is private citizen. 
<laughs> As a public relations professional, these months, days, weeks are great because it creates a news hook. So for example, I'm an adoptive mom. November is Adoption Awareness Month creates a news hook to suddenly cover adoption because adoption was happening in October and it's going to be happening in January. Why cover? Where's the reason, the impetus to cover at any particular time? So by putting these kind of semi-bogus days on the calendar, ta-da, gives us a, an excuse for covering it. But of course, as a private citizen, and I could tell, I, I have a feeling you're of a similar mind, just judging by the question, they can create awkwardness and even cringeworthiness because why are we only spending one month a year on black history when it is such an integral part of U.S. history? Same thing with women's history. Does that mean we can ignore it for the other 11 months of the year? On the other hand, the more we see people that are not fitting this typical CEO profile and the more positive accolades these companies get for more diversity at the highest levels, I think it not only paves the way, but builds the expectation that other Fortune 500 companies better look at themselves and try and uh, keep pace a little bit more vigorously. I read a very interesting article in SC Magazine recently about a Bank of America. I don't know if it was a panel or a conference, but talking about neurodiversity and how companies are adapting to people's learning styles. And I think that was really great. So they didn't necessarily identify one person, but the whole issue of neurodiversity and how they can be sensitive to someone who may be on the spectrum and they recognize that and the person is okay recognizing that and understanding, well, I need to get that person material ahead of time and then talk to that person because that's the way that person learns. They wanna be prepared. And then by the time I speak with him or her, he or she feels very prepared. So I think that was great. And I think that's a good example of a very large company, a Bank of America, showing their sensitivities and their positive guidance of how to deal with diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm assuming you get approached by companies who say, we want to be better at this. How do we do it? So what are some things that they can do until it's part of their culture? Well, in trainings, I advise companies to be pretty blunt when they talk about diversity in the sense that just giving the altruistic story, uh, where we're hiring, we have this whole program hiring neurodiverse people, or I've, I do, I've done a lot of work over the years for USAA. I like to call them out in public because they do an extraordinary job of hiring veterans and, and uh, people who have had any role in the military and their spouses. And that, you think about that, that's a pretty big category. It includes people that are that are now disabled in some fashion, who may have um, try, have gotten are still suffering with traumatic uh, brain injuries, and so on and so forth. But what I say to them is, talk about the value, the benefits that these employees give you, because you know what, no company is really that believable when they just profess al altruism. If they're trying to make it sound like, you know, aren't we fantastic? Look who we hire. Look at all this. It's easy to think, yeah, and the minute your stock drops a little bit, these are going to be the first folks that you throw overboard. But on the other hand, just to go back to USAA, for an example, for example, they talk about we hire so many vets and, you know, these are the people we're targeting with our products in our marketing. And who knows these people better than other vets? We need them to effectively sell our products and services. 
Well, now they sound like they've got a lot more of their own financial skin in the game. And what they're doing, even though it might be a little extra effort, like the work involved in keeping a neurodiverse person fully employed, we can see that there's going to be a big payoff for the company. It's more, it's believable that they'll stick with it. I'd like to wrap this up, Melody, and I could talk with you for hours. But at the beginning of the session here, we talked about the prep. Now let's talk about continuous improvement, how organizations or companies can keep the mojo going and the reporters coming back for more. It's a great question. So many times I run into, you probably do too, a CEO or other company leader, and you ask them, you kind of probe gently about how such and such an interview went and what did you think of the finished piece? And they, what you get back is, oh, I, I can't bear to look at it afterwards or listen to it or watch it. I just move on and my, my PR people will tell me if there's anything we need to fix at this point. And that's not a good way to improve. It's no surprise. I'm going to say this, of course, just as I extol preparing in advance of these opportunities, I think it's imperative that we use these opportunities as a platform for growth. So you just have to suck it up, take a deep breath and go back and read a transcript of such a thing as available or watch the recordings, read the articles, the uh, the blog posts, whatever, the podcast, whatever it happens to be. And I have worked with leaders and to John's earlier point, the younger generations of leaders, I think are very tuned into this. I have several who come back to me repeatedly to review a uh, bunch of, of uh, broadcast coverage that followed a bell ringing at the New York Stock Exchange, for example, and really wanted a blow-by-blow -blow critique of how they did. And critique, critique is such a harsh word. I like to say I break for carrots as well as sticks. The point is just to tell someone, you nailed it there. Oh, that's a spot you might have gotten in the XYZ message that we've practiced together so much. But only by reviewing it is do you get that chance to see how, how am I doing? You know, how am I integrating the message, the learning of the preparation and the training process? Uh, so that's really important. And it's also important that you check to see how it went with the reporter. Did you give them something that they can use? You have to go as part of your agenda before any media interview, make sure at a bare minimum you're giving that reporter change. That's table stakes. You've got to give them something that's new. It's, it's true today that wasn't true a week ago or yesterday. So you've got to give them some kind of piece of meat or you're not, gonna, you're not giving them anything interesting to sink their teeth into. Reporters more than anything else would like some conflict, some controversy. You may opt not to wade into those waters, but at, a ver at the very least, you have to give them something that is different today than yesterday. And of course, if you're a public company, you have to be very mindful of things like Regulation FD. It's been on the books a long time, but it's still a good reminder. Everyone has to find out stuff kind of the same time. We don't want to give us something that could materially impact stock only to one news outlet. So just with that and similar caveats in mind, make sure that you're giving something of substance because there's nothing that makes a reporter feel more burned than being contacted by a company. They clear time in their agenda to have that conversation and there really is no news. There's just an organization that is hungry for some kind of coverage and kind of trumps something up to get that coverage. The reporter may ultimately be trapped into providing it that day, but boy, they're going to look really hard at any future press releases or pitch notes that they get, pitch emails they get from you. That's true. And executives in the organizations have to understand that reporters have different styles. They want different kinds of information. That's certainly part of the prep process. 
to make sure that the executive understands the audience and can tailor responses for that. John, did you want to say something as well? I will sometimes make analogies to their sales staff. Because if a salesperson walks into a prospect's office and only cares about walking out with a purchase order and doesn't care about the customer, they're not going to make the sale, short term or long term. Same thing goes with reporters. If you walk into an interview thinking, I mean mine, what can this reporter do for me? You're not going to get today's story. Or if you do, you'll get this one and then that's it. And they'll never come back to you. How can we help the reporter? Life's a two-way street. If we can help them do their job better, They're going to appreciate that. They're going to come back to us looking for information about the industry and the markets that we're in. So just treat reporters with the same respect you treat anybody else. I love that. It's uh, let's view every conversation as part of a relationship, not just a transaction, which, by the way, can be really important if a company hits some rocky, some rocky shoals along the way. They hit some kind of a crisis. Having a relationship with a reporter, no, as we all know, does not mean that they'll look the other way and not cover it. But it does mean they might make a little extra effort to make sure they get the other side of the story, that they go to try and get a quote to hear what the company has to say about it. You know, all this can be summed up by one of my favorite philosophers, um, Martin Buber. He counseled us to view, to talk to others in an I-thou fashion, not an I-it fashion. Very nice. Melody, uh, how can people reach you if they want to learn more or talk with you about executive coaching and media training. Thank you for that, Davida. You can find me on my website, which is MK, as in Melody Kimmel, mkmediatraining.com. And I look forward to engaging in an I-thou fashion. Well, I enjoyed the conversation today. And John Moran, always a pleasure. You have a good rest of your day. And hopefully we'll uh, we'll catch up in another few months. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Our thanks to Melody Kimmel for joining us on the Look Left at Marketing podcast. For more information on her services and to check out her Expressways blog, please visit her website at www.mkmediatraining.com. We hope you'll subscribe to the Look Left at Marketing series. Of course, we're on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you happen to get your podcast. And we always welcome your comments and suggestions potentially for future episodes. Speaking of what's coming up next time around, Brian Scanlon and Matt Raven will examine the latest trends in content marketing and some of the most important strategies for B2B companies to consider. Thanks again for joining us on this edition of the Look Left at Marketing podcast. Till next time, be well.